0: Make sure that there's no riot downstairs and that the building doesn't stop burning or anything like that. There's plenty of fire
1: extinguishers all around. We're good.
2: Welcome to episode 21 of the ZA Dev Chat Podcast. Very interesting episode around DevOps and Ansible, and uh, we've got Kenneth and Kevin, our regulars on the line, and I just want to introduce you to Andre from Cloud Africa. How's it, Andre?
3: Hi, everybody. Great to be
2: here. Yeah, welcome. And Gabriel.
3: Hey, hey, guys.
2: How you doing? Cool. Cool. Yeah. Gabriel from Zero One, taking time out of his super busy schedule to be with us. Cool. So, um, Andre, you want to give us a little bit of a background for the listeners? Just uh, where do you fit into the world and like, where do you come from?
4: Um, I kind of grew up in an ISP environment. Uh, started messing around with uh, nice big corporate networks and uh, fancy machines somewhere in 1996.
2: That makes
4: me sound terribly old. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um,
4: My career so far has had a a major focus on integration around uh, open source technologies and, uh, you know, gluing the right bits together to get the the customer requirements going. Um, That has led me into a space where I've been leading development teams, um, supporting development teams, building tooling, um, and where I am now, which is building a cloud.
2: That's super cool. That's super cool.
4: Yeah, lots of fun.
2: Thanks. And Gabriel, I know we've had you on before, but maybe just could you give us a little bit of a bio and where you are and what you're up to at the moment?
3: Sure thing. Uh, Kind of like Andre, I've got a a background in working with ISPs and service providers. And that was fun for a while. Uh, About six, seven months ago, decided to strike out on my own with a partner. And we started Zero One, a dev consultancy. And since then, we have been coding up a storm. It's been amazing.
2: That's super cool, and we definitely have to get you guys back on to to have a follow-up. I know we spoke to you way at the beginning when you guys were just launching, so we've got to get you back on someday to find out how it's going.
3: Yeah, so much has happened, so much has changed, It's it's been quite a journey, so I'm looking forward to that episode.
2: Cool, cool. All right, but tonight we're here under the sort of general umbrella of DevOps, and uh, we're, we're going to touch on Ansible a bit later. I think we've got a couple of questions, and, and it's more of a panel discussion, uh, you know, everything's good. Um, so the first question on, to the general uh, panel is, like, what is configura- configuration automation and what's it good for? Why should we use it? Are there any real benefits to it, or is it just a, a complete pain? Andre, got any thoughts on well, that?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple. I mean. Um I don't know if anybody's followed a, a how-to article to get a, a service up and running. You know, there's maybe eight eight to ten steps that you have to do and pay good attention to to get it right. Um, and you know, that kind of of text-based instructional run book is is very easy for a sysadmin to to miss a step and to get horribly snarled up. Um, that kind of thing starts costing time, starts costing your customers a bit of money. Uh, one of the benefits around actually taking those instructions and automating them is we can start treating um, these little blocks of code that provide uh, infrastructure uh, the same way we do our code. So you know we can version it, we can um, share it with our friends, we can get them to improve it. You can get the open source community to help you contribute to it, um, and you can you can minimise the the risk of mistakes. You can get your repeatability off the scale and you can start sleeping a little better at night because you you actually know that when something is done it's done
2: okay cool Gabriel how do you see configuration automation
3: well um i think mostly what andre said is rings true for me but i think i want to talk about when does configuration automation become useful and for me, I found that this is really something that you need when, when you start having infrastructure at scale and that scale can be like, you've got a team at scale, maybe you've got like a 10 or a 15 man team, or you've got servers in the hundreds to, to, to thousands. That's when like being able to systematically and re- deploy repeatedly, that kind of, that kind of scenario is where this discipline becomes super, super crucial. So one of the other things is, I mean, when you start having playbooks in Ansible and you start having, I think they're called recipes in Chef, um, for the most part is these things effectively become your standard documentation. So if you want to know how things work, how they're set up, you can look to these, these playbooks or these recipes and you can go, this is how my infrastructure is meant to hang together. And one of the key bonuses here is that this documentation effectively becomes executable. So, what's in the document and what's on the network can be the same thing, which is almost never the case with normal documentation.
2: Hmm. Okay, I mean, I'm I'm going to jump in there and say that I, I hear what you're trying to get to, but you know, if if you're in Chef, your your recipes are written in Ruby. If you're in Ansible, they're all written in Raml, YAML. And I think Kenneth's got a point there about just being able to read these things easily. They're not always that easy to read. So I don't know if all the time it's that good as documentation. I think you still have to write good documentation.
3: (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I've seen some wiki articles and word docs, which are are practically legible as well. So, I mean, it swings and roundabouts, but where you are going to spend a lot of effort making things as readable as possible? And, I mean, I, I don't see too many really good documentation for like manual documentation, like a Word doc or a Wiki page, it's it can be equally as bad. Yeah, there's there tends
4: to be quite a lot of drift in that kind of thing because the infrastructure moves quite a lot faster than the the person's inclination to update the documentation. So I kind of I kind of agree with Gabriel that, um, specifically around the scale side. But I, I also disagree that it becomes really important at scale. I think it becomes really important as a as a first up practice. Even on a one man project, um, you know, documentation and, like, clear instructions about what's going on inside your code base and inside your infrastructure is valuable. Any business that has a standard operating procedure or that, that level of, of um, executable documentation will attract quite a lot more value uh, from the onset than uh, a business that has a, a, a derelict wiki page or Word document.
2: Okay, so we seem to be, like, kind of jumping into the thick of it. Perhaps uh, we could give uh, a description of what is Ansible? Like, what is this tool called Ansible and how does it work?
3: Cool. So Ansible is this IT automation tool. Um, You write declarative documentation. I suppose it could also be, some some of it could be imperative. But you write uh, effectively a set of YAML files that are called playbooks and you can compose them, you can mix in roles, Uh, and you basically point it at infrastructure um, and run, and it can then go and automate all your infrastructure. So some of the great stuff where I said you can point it to inventory is that you can actually use the same set of playbooks for different environments. So uh, when we on projects, we actually have a set of vagrant files that simulate our production infrastructure, and we really just use um, a local staging or a local UAT set of inventory which points to the local vagrants. And then we can reuse those just for production by just using different inventory files. Um, so, yeah, it's a great way to re- to get reproducible infrastructure across the board, and it works. Okay.
2: Cool. So, yeah. so by, by, inf- by inventory, you mean a list of servers, right? I think that's the way Ansible talks about these things. You've got this inventory file that is literally a list of the servers that you want to automate the configuration of?
3: Yeah, it's not necessarily an inventory file. I mean, I think you can read your inventory from something like console by HashiCorp if you wanted.
2: Okay, sure, but but you have the list of servers, right? That's that the inventory is essentially a list of the servers that you run against.
3: Sure, it's a, it's a little bit more than that. It's like servers and which are the usernames you should use when you're speaking to the servers. Uh, what are some of the connection details? And if you have any kind of inventory-specific variables, you can point that into your inventory as well.
2: Okay, cool, cool. So you can, you can stick in, like, how to get hold of the server, how to access it, what all the creds are. And I think you can also group servers in your mm-hmm. inventory into sort of, like, logical names, right? You can say, like, these are all the web servers, these are all the database servers.
3: These are my workers. That's my load balancing Pod of servers, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, that's right. And then you've got these like playbooks, which are sort of these YAML descriptive files that say what should happen on the servers. Is that is that the correct way to think about Ansible?
3: Yeah, it's a little bit more subtle than that. It's not about what should happen. It's more um, more along the lines of how things should be. So you okay. don't say like use this command to create this user. You basically say you know there should be a user present with these. Parameters against it, as an example.
0: But I think at a higher level, when you declare, say, you've got your web servers, or you've got your database server, you then define a set of roles that you expect these servers to conform to. Sure. So, and those those roles are then defined in the in those YAML yeah, so files. Yeah. So you
3: can uh, the, the roles are actually um, meant to be reusable. Um, so you can actually publish those roles, which I'm sure we'll get to a bit a little bit later when we talk about reuse. But you can use roles, roles are specifically meant for reuse. So if you have a lot of different machines across a lot of different projects and systems that are all you know, firewalled in a certain way, and they all have a specific version of node that needs to be on it, and a specific set of monitoring uh, configurations, then you would put those in roles and you would say, these machines have these roles. So that's where the roles come into it.
2: Uh, isn't it like what you're trying to do is say within my application, this is the role these servers will have?
3: Yeah, you can abstract it up to that level.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, so you could say I want Ruby 2.2 installed on these servers. I need Postgres installed on that server. And that can be shared as roles.
2: Well, well, is right? the, the role The role would be something like web server. Right. And then the web server role would include a bunch of playbooks and instructions of how to get that server to become a server. So the role I wanted to play is web server.
3: Exactly. I think you've hit hit the nail on the head there. And these roles are effectively really just packaged playbooks for all intents and purposes. They are playbooks that someone has written. They've generalized them by making some of the things configurable through variables. And then they've put them into a special um, structure that is compatible or recognizable by Ansible as roles. And then you include them in, in the way that you would effectively include source files when you're including source files into a project for code. And then you say it's a web server for whatever values you deem a web server is. And when you run the playbook, uh, it gets, those things get executed before your normal tasks. Are roles able
0: to be composed of other roles? Okay.
3: Yes.
2: Okay, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you could have like a, a clustered web server role, which includes just the in each individual node would be a web server, but then the clustered one could include the the clustering role as well.
1: Maybe as some like we dove in really deep immediately in, into like Ansible and kind of its mechanics. If we have to zoom out, if somebody encounters configuration management or infrastructure as code. Or something for the first time and we now have to sell it to them what is the actual problem we're solving why is this better than having a bunch of bash scripts on a server somewhere in a home directory that is reliably backed up and like let's just assume the backups can actually be restored if that would be the counter argument why would somebody want to go this route rather than just carrying on SCP files to their linux home directory
3: Sure. Um, I'll take a stab at it and then maybe Andre, you can sort of just tag team in. Um, so for me, uh, the thing that I like about using systems like Ansible or Chef or Puppet or whatever is that they, they effectively become the source of truth for how your infrastructure should be. And moreover, they actually become the executable source of truth. And the analogy that I like to use when explaining this to so I suppose at least developers, I haven't picked up a perfect analogy yet for, dis- for explaining this to business people, but this is the equivalent of how you look at um, automated acceptance testing with, like maybe Capybara or Cucumber, that kind of thing, versus manual testing. So what you've got is you can very quickly, very repeatably, and on demand rerun your deployments of your infrastructure, and with, with with a single command. Whereas if you had to do this manually, it's error prone. It takes time. And it can get very, very costly. So for me, I think that's one of the real big sells for for selling this to why it's a good thing for at least for a technical person.
2: Sure, but back to Kenneth's point, like why not just some bash scripts? Well, let me let me
4: have a go at that. Sure. Um so you know, there are there are probably by now many hundreds of years worth of, of man effort that have gone into into providing modules inside of Ansible that of come up a layer they're a a really good abstraction of what you want to do typically on systems like add users manage packages start and stop services control load balances and those are kind of the the high level atoms that you can use to construct your your playbook or the you know enact the changes that you want in your infrastructure to be able to get to that high level using a bunch of bash scripts, a you're going to have to put in a couple of hundred manuals and you probably arrive at the same level of abstraction as these guys have already. It's there, it's supported, it's open source. Um, now, those, those are the arguments I would use over bash scripts.
3: Cool. Yeah, that, that's really perfect. So, I mean, the other thing is, for the same reason that we use frameworks like Rails and Ember and Angular and Phoenix on Elixir, I mean, this is the, one of the reasons why you would want to use something like Ansible or Chef or Puppet, in my opinion, it removes the bike shedding and allows you to just get on with, with getting your infrastructure out there. And more importantly, it acts as a multiplier agent. This is really important in terms of the economics of why you would want to do this. You can increase your human-to-machine ratio by orders of magnitude. So where is it feasible for like one person to look after maybe 10 servers completely manually? Using things like Ansible or Chef or Puppet you can get from one one person to 100 machines or one person to 1,000 machines. That is crucial.
2: Cool. Um, I I think there's one important point that uh, we're we're not touching on, Kenneth, which is that Ansible brings a sort of item potency to the table. So you can run the same scripts against the same servers over and over again. And as long as the servers are in the correct state, the scripts will do nothing to those servers. So you know, part of like what Chef and Ansible and all these tools do is they they check the state of the server first. And so, for example, if you know, in, in one of the examples of installing Ruby on the server, the Ansible will actually check if Ruby is already installed. If it isn't, then it'll bring the server to the right state. Otherwise, it'll just leave that server alone if the right version is already installed. So you know you can run Ansible against running production servers, and it won't break production.
1: I think the idempotency, to me at least, is is probably the most crucial thing for people to understand. Exactly, that prevents yeah. that snowflake. If if somebody is not used to this kind of automation and they fiddle with something on the server, like I mean, with no ill intent, this is a great way to just roll back that minute little change that they. That they had. So, yeah, guys, I think you did quite a good job. Uh, For some background, uh, like a few years ago, I walked away from a hundred plus node Chef installation. So, like, I'm full on board with this stuff and I've seen it scale. And Gabriel, like you said, like one guy can look after 100 servers. Uh, Yes, it's possible easily without getting called awake at night. So, yeah, I think that was a great intro. And I think the interpotency is probably the most important part. So not just that initial setup and repeatability, it's just that fact that you can, whatever tool you've got, run every half an hour against your live environment. And you just have this described state and the whole system strives to always be in that state. And that is a very freeing thing as an ops person to not have to worry about a ton of this stuff.
2: Yes, I guess another difference between the sort of bash or whatever approach and the Ansible tools is that in the bash, you're actually going to be programming, right? You're going to be doing this sort of imperative stuff. Whereas in in the um, Ansible world, you just declare, I want Ruby version XYZ on the server. And Ansible will take care of getting that version, installing it, et cetera, et cetera.
1: So if I want to contrast and and push and pull it, Advanceable a bit more from a, a chef background. So, Chef, the idea, the notion is you'll have a cookbook. A cookbook brings together a bunch of different recipes. An example for that, for instance, would be as you'd have an Apache cookbook and it would have a default recipe, which basically would just install the package and get it going. And then there'll be additional recipes in the same cookbook to give you mod PHP 5, mod CGI, whatever other setup you've got. And then you can, from there on, compose it and, and fine-tune the kind of granularity you want for every server with, like, node-specific attributes or role-specific attributes, if you're grouping them together, or environment-specific attributes, Chef can distinguish between your pre-production and production environments if you if you so wanted to. I know, or my understanding is that Ansible is serverless for one, so there's a big difference. You run it from some machine somewhere else, pointing it to your infrastructure where chef runs a client on every single node that talks back to the mothership and asks it for details to do. So like, just from, I heard you guys use playbooks as a word. I mean, groups makes like makes sense and, and composing groups of others makes perfect sense. But like, like, what's the scope of a playbook and how do you execute a playbook against the node?
3: So, um, okay. So the first thing is, uh, a playbook is really just a set of tasks and roles and variables that run against a bunch of groups. And you put those things in order if you want, uh, in an order that you want them to run in, and they can be pretty much everything from soup to nuts. So the minute you you boot up a fresh, pristine server to the second that it is running a complete application, your playbook can handle all of that. So what you've got is, um, let me see. I think, let me actually pull up a <laughs> one of my playbooks, if you don't mind. Andre, just take over for me while I pull up a playbook, if you don't mind.
4: No worries. I mean, um, so we spoke a little bit about roles earlier on, Kenneth, and those, those are essentially the, you know, you'd have a role, Len mentioned, um, which is responsible for getting your web server in. Then potentially you'd have another role that is responsible for deploying your application that the, the web server is going to proxy let's say it's a, a rails app or something like that right so your playbook yes. itself will include the role for you know the the well defined reusable role for how to get apache in. and then it can start with tasks required to to execute to actually get your application installed so the first thing install will be get your get your code checked out um, all your dependencies into your vendor directory if you like it that way, and then start things up and change, change configurations where needed. So, you know, you can use a playbook to run just these tasks, step one, step two, step three. And uh, it's just the reuse, it happens to be something called roles. And it's generally um, done in such a way that it, it represents one aspect of what you're doing.
1: The the roles bring in predefined tasks that somebody else made just for like a yes a sake of argument
2: yeah so, so maybe I can jump in there um, just contrasting to to chef before we continue the the chef model is is essentially a pull model from the chef agents running on the nodes if you remember correctly Kenneth yes yes yeah so the the chef agents can be configured to check in with the chef server like every half an hour or whatever. Ansible is much more comparable to Chef Solo. It's a push-based model. So generally, you only ever run Ansible when you, you know something's changed. So for example, your build server or your, your Git repo or whatever detects a commit or a build finishes or whatever. That then would trigger an Ansible playbook to run. So there's an actual tool called Ansible playbook, and you give it the name of your high-level YAML file and um, possibly a set of hosts on the command line, or the playbook, or the playbook itself will include which hosts it wants to run on. But because Ansible doesn't have a server, managing inventory can get a little bit more tricky than within like Chef and Puppet, because in Chef and Puppet you've got these central repositories of your entire infrastructure, which are kind of dynamic. They're being uh, investigated by the chef and puppet agents all the time. Ansible has to go and check out the inventory on every run. It's it's one of the overheads that you get because you just sort of kick the script off every
3: time. So the one thing is it should be said that uh, there actually is a server sort of thing for Ansible. It's called Ansible Tower. Uh, It's not open source. You have to pay for it. Uh, but I think, I have it on good word that uh, it will become open source and free very soon um, now that Ansible has been acquired by Red Hat. I think it's their policy to just open source everything. So I, I'm pretty sure we'll get Ansible Tower free very, very soon.
2: That, that would be awesome. Mm. That would be super awesome. So then the, the, the second thing with uh, Ansible is that all the kind of primitives, um, say around package management, are pre-built in Python. So you just, um, you just say package space NGINX or package NGINX and the specific version that you want. And then Ansible itself will detect, okay, this is running Ubuntu or CentOS or whatever the target operating system is and run the actual low-level commands on that target server, be it YAM or apt or whatever, just same as in Puppet and Chef. So a lot of Ansible work, um, I've committed some... Uh, tasks to the Ansible uh, extras repo, for example, which you know just build up this big library that you've got available when you're building your tasks. So your your tasks are just purely declarative. You hardly have to do any work. which just make one of the things that makes the Ansible environment really neat is you've got these pretty high-level tasks just available, like copy these files around, get these packages installed. Uh, make sure these services are started, for example. And that's regardless of whether you're using system D, you know, good old init or whatever on the server. You just say or upstart. Yeah, upstart, et cetera, et cetera. You just say service X like started or active or whatever it is. And Ansible will take care of the low level.
3: And that's the thing. You don't actually say like start Nginx. You say Nginx should be started yeah. effectively. So you're not saying what it must do. You're saying how it should be. And then I think the other thing, the one thing I wanted to mention in terms of playbooks was there's another special section in playbooks, which is quite crucial to getting, these, to getting your whole automation strategy to work great, and that's the concept of handlers. So what you can do is you can say uh, when a specific task has completed, you can then notify a handler. As an example, um, if you've deployed uh, your Rails app, you can then notify like Puma and Nginx, to restart. And then what happens is right at the end of the playbook, um, it uniques the list of notified handlers so that they don't get restarted multiple times and then it runs through them. So it will, if you change firewall rules, it will restart your IP tables. If you start, it will restart your Nginx and your Puma if you wanted it to do that. Very, very important. And then obviously if nothing changed, those handlers don't get notified and they don't get restarted. Pretty cool.
0: One thing I found very attractive with all of these tools and I know from working with a bit of ansible it's certainly true there uh, it's just the community of uh, these roles that you can just download uh, that you can add into your
2: own configuration and um, yeah, there's actually a thing called ansible galaxy which is pretty yeah. cool yeah you can just say like yeah like search for nginx like uh, Playbooks, and it'll give you a bunch. Yeah,
0: yeah. And as far as I recall, I haven't used this in a while. You can just uh, use a command line ansible galaxy to grab the role straight from from the ansible galaxy, and it just adds it to your local directory.
2: That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there's this wealth of useful kind of primitive some primitive some more complex roles that you can just grab straight from there and just reuse straight away so if you want to install that apache or nginx configuration you don't need to start rolling it yourself from scratch Uh, and i'm pretty sure you'll find um roles on the galaxy here for pretty much every open source tool that you'd really want to install in a server
3: yeah so i mean i haven't i haven't had a lot of uh success with galaxy um, and that might just be because I, I was maybe expecting it to do too much. Uh, the, best I've, the best I've had with Galaxy is to use as small components as possible. So, I mean, trying to get it to deploy an entire Rails, uh, entire Rails application never really worked out for me because they're all a little bit too diffi- uh, different. So just using it to maybe install a monitor or a, you know, Postgres there is quite useful but I think anything too much, too bigger than that is even
0: a one. Yeah, that's what I mean. So if you want to install that Nginx server and you want to install a Puma web server that runs on a Unix socket, you're, you're, you should find kind of these smaller primitives are all set up for you already by other community members. So
1: this actually segues quite nicely into something I wanted to ask. So if I, and I've stumbled across some playbooks for setting up Kubernetes a few weeks ago and, I had such a tough time trying to figure even reverse engineer this stuff halfway to figure out what I did because I wanted to do it manually just to get a grip on the installation. Uh how can I go about like easily reading this? Like what would be the full process to reverse <laughs> engineer this? I mean, I'm just I'm saying for like if you think if we now an existing sysadmin listens to the show or somebody like an old man that shakes fist at cloud, like, obviously a way to, like, garner trust in these tools, this ecosystem, Galaxy especially, is to be able to go and read the stuff. I mean, we, like, we go to RubyGems, we click the GitHub button, we go read the code. We go to NPM, we click the GitHub button, we go check out the code. Like, we, there's kind of this thing of inspecting the tools before you let it loose while you build confidence in the in the system. How, how do we do that on Galaxy, if I go find the first Nginx recipe or f- first Nginx role here, how do I know it's legit?
2: I, just before the guys into that, I think you've also stumbled into my biggest complaint with Ansible, and that is YAML itself. I like I really don't like it. It makes it I find it very difficult to read YAML as a program language or, or declarative language for these kind of things, especially when you're getting into like deploying an entire application. But Andre, Gabriel, take it away.
4: Well, I think, so you need to be aware of the the structure of a role for it to make sense to you. Um, There are a number of things that you can expect from a role. A role is able to include other roles. Um, To determine what they are, you need to have a look at a metadata directory, and there's a a main.yaml. All all the files are called main.yaml. So just to get back to what Len says, it is a little bit confusing when you're you, you know, you're a foot deep in source code for, for this stuff as to exactly what it is you're looking at. Um, but each role can declare its own dependencies, which will be other roles. Um, in terms of inspectability, um, almost all of the roles I've looked at have been hosted on on public um, source repositories like GitHub or Bitbucket. Um, and I'm pretty sure that most of the ones that are published inside of Ansible Galaxy also fall into into that into those those groups and those areas. Um, So yes, dependencies, and then you can actually have a look at the tasks, you know, um, what is it trying to do packages? Is it installing? And in fact, what operating system is this thing rated for, you know, there, there should be a high level descriptor in each of these projects that gives you some idea of what the target for that particular Ansible uh, role is. Uh, I find the majority of the ones I look for or look at out there are either CentOS, CentOS, or, or Red Hat based, um, with Ubuntu and Debian kind of squeaking in second. Um, yeah, uh, it gets confusing because one of the other things we haven't touched on is is Ansible has a, a fairly rich templating engine as well, so you can template out configuration files as part of your tasks and. To be able to understand what the split is doing, you have to understand uh, which variables are in scope at that point. Um, for standalone roles, that's normally pretty easy, but it can get pretty complicated once you start looking at, at orchestrating multi-machine stacks. You know, Is it the, the, the global variable space, the host group variable space, the host variable space, the inventory variable space? I mean, this is one area for me where... You know the right practice hasn't really become apparent. Gabriel, do you have any comments there?
3: Yeah, I've had that problem myself. Um, I've do ju- judicious judicious use of the debug task helps a lot. Yes. Um, what I normally do is I'll I'll go and I'll edit I'll add a task in just before the task that's meant to use that variable. Just output that variable to see what's what. Um, and that's been a pretty decent way to to understand what's going on. It's a bit clunky, um, and I think they are improving some of that with, with Ansible 2.0. The one thing I wanted to point out with YAML is, like, absolutely, it's um, it, it can be bad. I do think that there's a style of writing playbooks that is more readable than what you typically find in the documentation and in examples on tutorials. Um, you, you can explode your parameters per task onto a line, Per parameter makes it a lot easier. Uh, the other thing is naming your tasks. That helps a lot. That almost like self-document stuff. So, for instance, I'm looking at a task here that says update the apt cache. That's the name. But if you just looked at the task, it would say apt update cache yes cache valid time eighty six And if you didn't have uh, if you didn't have a deep understanding of the apt um, framework, you wouldn't understand what's going on there. So putting in names for each of your tasks helps a lot in terms of readability. You can also, you know, you'll come back to this thing three months later, same as code that you wrote three months ago and you're looking and you go like, who wrote this? And then you'll end up hating yourself.
4: Yeah, previous right. me.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so, so naming your tasks, uh, using a nice clean uh, YAML style goes a lot, goes a long, long way in terms of aiding readability. But I'm with you then, is uh, not the best formatting language.
2: Yeah, Kenneth, the thing that opened my eyes was coming from the chef world where you're essentially in Ruby, right? Like you're in the middle of this recipe, you want to do something, you can just break out some Ruby and start coding imperatively. Yeah, the the thing that uh, happened for me was I needed to do some like extra stuff. And then I realized after kind of getting a test plugin going and some kind of crazy stuff that the... The names in the YAML are just kind of calls into Python code. So Ansible is all Python, and the Python is actually quite well structured. So like operating system detection and all those kind of things are there inside the tasks. And I, I literally copied an existing task and was able to customize it fairly quickly so that I could write the sort of few words in the task. And Ansible was then able to run my Python code on the remote server, which was actually quite nice. But only doing that did I really kind of understand what was going on. And the second thing that really helps is sitting next to Andre because I can just, you know, ask him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I must say that uh, Chef, which was a huge benefit for me, was the the, the ability to just write the raw Ruby code in the recipes and then do all kinds of insane things but we quickly like over time started rolling back some of those changes and just fight for simplicity i think it was also just ugh, the size of the network as you start like not just reducing the simplicity but trying to reduce the network size a lot of that magic felt uh, fell away um i was going with this somewhere
2: never mind so Yeah, so, so uh, Ansible forces the separation between the declarative bit, with a few exceptions, like they try to do loops in YAML, which I think is just really weird. They've got like a with task or thing. It's very odd. but the they, they, Yeah, they, they, the separation between the declarative part, which is in YAML, and the thing that actually does the work, which is in Python. I think that's definitely, from a structural point of view, solves that problem you got into with Chef.
1: Yes. No. That makes a lot of sense. So, do, do we do, uh, do you need Python on the remote server where you're connecting to, or does this thing evaluate it to some kind of shell magic and then just?
2: No. You you have to have Python on the remote server. It was a surprise to me as well.
1: So, I mean, most Linuxes ship with it. I mean, out the box. So, I don't think that's a problem. But can you then instrument uh, Windows
4: machines with Ansible? Yes, you can. Um, I've uh, I've been playing around with it a little bit. You can do. Um, WinRM management with it, and you, you kind of set your host up a little bit differently in inventory. You have to do a couple of, of manual steps um, to enable WinRM and certificates on the on the Windows machine. But from then on in, you get a, a set of primitives that are built for managing packages and services
2: on Windows. But on not all those primitives, are they PowerShell, right?
4: Pretty much, yeah. They evaluate down to PowerShell.
2: Yeah, so in Windows, you don't need Python on the server, is that correct? And then, in
0: terms of package manager, does it use chocolatey?
4: Um, chocolatey is one of the one of the options you have available. Yeah,
0: okay. that's the only one that I'm actually familiar with on Windows.
1: And yeah, I thought you were making up random names. Um, no, that's. I just think I ask because I think it's it's like we all like to envision this like Linux only world where things just happen and it's reduced and simple. But the reality is people run Windows boxes everywhere, as well. That's why I just I was curious about that. I know the Chef guys have this Omnibus installer, so like to make it dead simple to just plop your Ruby and everything down in Windows and on Linux without it clobbering the main system and stuff. But it seems like Ansible's got a much lighter footprint, so it's not even an issue.
4: Much. It requires Python um, 2.4 or later, and for anything managed with Python 2.5, you need an additional Python package installed called python-simplejson. That's literally it.
1: And could Ansible bootstrap that process of installing that package? Because I assume it's just yeah. pip install python-json. Okay, yeah.
4: that's cool. So we've, we've, we've done that with some operating systems that arrive without Python, specifically inside of our cloud. Smart OS um, clients don't. You have an ability to actually write a shell script that will do the, the bootstrap process, and Ansible will facilitate getting that, that bootstrap process run. Oh, so that that's it can, fantastic. It can take from that.
2: You can sort of start Ansible in this raw mode. You can tell it, listen, like don't try and get any inventory from the server because one of the first things Ansible does on a run is it logs into the remote server and tries to figure out what's going on on that server, you know, like what packages are installed, et cetera, et cetera, so that it can do a diff against what's required before going and running stuff. You can tell it, like, don't even try (laughs) just kind of go into this raw mode and literally run this bash script on that server. Uh, What you have to do then is just take care of your own item potency, you know, like leave a marker file in a directory or something so that you can check it on the next run.
1: Oh, so it will run it every single time or is it just a manual bootstrap?
2: It runs it every... Well, if you run that playbook, it runs it, yeah.
1: Oh, okay. I just remember the chef stuff. He used to point the chef client. Knife. I can't remember, but
2: N- Bootstrap.
1: Knife Bootstrap. Yeah. There you go. Thank you very much. That you have to school me on my past.
2: hey. hey. anytime. <laughs> <laughs> There's
3: nothing stopping you from having a Bootstrap-specific playbook, and you run that once, and then you don't ever use it again, and it's not your normal, everyday, continuous deployment playbook.
1: No, that's, that's really pretty cool because especially for that thing to live in the same version control, the same repo where the rest of the stuff lives. So it's like, okay, cool. I have this kind of magic that I inherited from somebody else. How does this work? No, that's that's pretty cool. Um, I wanted to ask does can you use uh, Ansible to collect, like you, you guys mentioned, like the inventory? Like, can you just have it, like, suck information back out? I mean, a Chef has got this thing called Ohai, uh, um Puppet has got a similar thing, I forgot its name now, where basically regardless of whatever manifest recipes, playbooks you apply on the node, it will go and gather all the users on the system, all the installed packages, all the services that are running, all the mount points, the routing tables, the hard drives, like all this kind of stuff that you can then use to interrogate or you can just discard completely, like
4: I'm just curious. Um, the Ansible fact-gathering is quite a lot leaner than that. It's not going to go and, and uh, sort of create these magic lists of users and packages. Uh, from, from my experience, it, it just gives you some facts about the host. You know, what's the networking layout? Potentially, what's the disk layout? What, uh, what environment variables are there present whilst Python is running? That level of information is, is supported by the facts. Uh, you can obviously code up your your own facts uh, and inject those into the process as well, but it's it's incredibly lean.
2: And those facts aren't persisted, Kenneth.
4: Okay, no, that's pretty cool. I mean, it,
1: it's all for the it sounds for the good thing. I'm not. I'm just using Chef to frame my my background. I mean, I, it was heavy. It worked well. Make no mistake, it was heavy
2: to mm. run.
1: It, it took effort and nursing and. It definitely paid off the investment we made into it, but it was not a light investment. And, and Ansible definitely sounds attractive. Even the chats I've had with everybody, like long before the school, over time, I've just never committed to put the time in to actually doing something with it.
3: Uh, I found like having to need to know exactly what's on a server beforehand in terms of the facts around it that's a pretty important thing to want to know when you don't have item potency guaranteed. Yeah, Yeah, I think what we used it for was
1: basically we could go uh, how much free disk space do we have throughout the cluster? What's our compute resources? So we knew we had these four racks of physical machines, but you're like, okay, what's actually going on in terms of usage? That kind of querying. I mean, it was very off the cuff and ad hoc. We did it few and far between. It was just nice to know it's there. It enabled some possibilities. But I'd be very... Like, it would be great to just be able to run some playbook against everything. All it does is just gathers data and dumps it out locally in
3: JSON, and you, like, send it to Excel and give it to the boss and walk away. So about that. Um, So we've been (laughs) talking about Ansible only in the context so far of playbooks. But you can actually just use Ansible to run arbitrary commands. So you can just say, like, Ansible without the Ansible-playbook, just Ansible... Uh, this specific task, which can be like, you know, disk usage or CPU usage or whatever. And you can actually run them against the host group. So you can say, run this against all the web servers. And you can get your output like that.
1: Okay, that's that's fantastic. So um, another thing I wanted to ask about, um, and I think I'm doing this on behalf of Kevin, is about uh, deploying applications. Like, how would that like neatly play out. And some background, like I never, ever, like we use Chef Deploy for a bit, which is like this Capistrano-like thing. But, okay, I guess it. I'm answering myself here in a way, please get me wrong, but the problem we faced was Chef would deploy a lot more often than we thought, and the stuff we deployed with it was not particularly well suited to just being deployed over and over and over again, and from time to time would fail. But I just realized in an Ansible world where you completely control the runtimes, I guess you would hook an Ansible playbook up to your CI pipeline. Well, well
2: uh, Andre can talk you through the Ansible that deploys Cloud Africa, if you like. I mean, that's, that's how we yes, do it. Yes,
4: please. Ah, give me a second to pull that code up.
3: Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, we use, we use Ansible to deploy everything from the very, very beginning of a server's life all the way through to it serving an application in a playbook, and we do that with some pretty complex apps. So, I mean, Andre, let me know when you're ready. Yeah, yeah, I'm ready. Okay, all right. I'll, uh, I'll talk, talk to you guys about my app deployments after Andre. Sure, oh, great. So, I mean, we have, a,
4: we have a pretty flat way of doing this. We, we just run a number of tasks. Um, our, our build environment has uh, well-known URLs for, for artifacts, um, which we utilize to to actually just grab the artifacts from the bull server at runtime, um, and then we deploy them. I mean it's it's as simple as that.
2: Um, oh, so so just to to clarify, we we go there's a special mode in Ansible where we, we tell it you want to run on one server at a time. like don't mm-hmm. run in parallel. Start with the first server, remove it from the load balancer group go grab the artifact off the build server, unpack it in a directory, uh, kind of install it on the server, restart that service, stick it back into the load balancer, and then kind of go on to the next service.
4: Actually, there are are a couple of, well, there's one step before we put it back into the load balancer, is we actually check that it's listening on the right port. Uh, and potentially that it's returning the right kind of content in a test before we put it into the load oh, balance yeah, group Oh, yeah, that's
2: right. There's an Ansible task that says, like, wait for or something, isn't it? Yes, yeah.
4: yeah. And there's normal. one that, that checks for for content. So for our application, we want to make sure that, you know, at the root of the application, it's returning a login prompt, for instance, um, before we allow it back into our load balance group. Um, and the super nice. cool. Yeah. It, so what's really nice about this is if any of this fails, Ansible stops running, you know, Um, any of these tasks hit a hit a return code that is not everything is okay it it just stops so i don't know there there have been some very subtle failure modes that i've I've witnessed in puppet where it it just carries on and, and does stuff and your entire app stack blows up spectacularly and it doesn't give you that level of of sort of control you know hey something's broken um has anybody else had an experience like that
1: I've had it with, with Chef, but not because, I guess, of Chef's fault. It's just tricky to set up the tests. Like, right. some custom tests in, in Chef, like, oh, well, back in the day, got really weak very, very quickly. So you start doing bizarre stuff where you, like, if your first hammer that you go for is shelling out to kill to some URL to kind of do something. And then cool, doesn't return the non-zero exit code that you thought it would yeah. when things go south and then suddenly like the thing's all happy, but everything's down and it can't seem to resolve the state again. Mm. So yeah, I think not by their fault, more ours, but it's definitely a pain when it lets you down
4: that way. Um, also, just stepping back a little, a little further, we've, uh, we've got a very thin Go-based API over Ansible that we, we call out to from our build server, you know, once a build is successful. We have the ability to to trigger an automated deploy at that point. Um, I imagine it's less than 80 lines of code that enables us to do that. But it runs through; it knows where your your Ansible repository is. It gets the latest um, from uh, Git, which we use, and then it runs your your Ansible playbook out with some reporting. Um, that paradigm of being able to just put these little blocks together and to get some really good complex behavior out of it is is, is fascinating and, and so much fun. Yeah, here. here.
3: That's really cool. Uh, from our side, uh, we we typically have a load balancer, database, web, and worker uh, host groups. It seems to be you know the the you know the vanilla setup, but we go through some pretty uh, cool stuff setting up stuff. I'd, I'd like to focus on the web. Uh, we effectively looked at what Capistrano did for uh, for Rails and re implemented it in Ansible. So it actually goes and pulls the application out It links directories. It puts a release directory in, does a bundle, does a migrate, and seed. One cool thing that we've noticed, or rather one pitfall that we've noticed for anyone that wants to do something similar is for RakeDB migrate and a RakeDB seed, um, you want to make sure that thing runs once per deploy. Otherwise, some weird stuff happens if they try to run at the same time. So you can actually tell Ansible, even though there might be 100 hosts in this host group, run this thing once. And then we go through everything. We've got a basic thing called, we've got we've got a task called server basics. And we run that across every single host in our host group, across all different host groups that make sure that the right users are on SSH is configured correctly and secure the, you know, the baseline packages are in there, that kind of thing. And then we top it all off with announcing to Slack when we start and when we stop, which is also super, super useful. Next up, we're going to put a Slack bot in that will initiate the
0: deploy for us awesome. so you say you're basically running the same kind of uh, deploy script that you would get if you use something like Capistrano uh, but running it through Ansible now what were the advantages of using Ansible I mean I can see the one being that you've got one tool uh, but I just want to see what else what are the advantages you found by using just Ansible for your deploys
3: So one of the cool things about using Ansible is that we can then selectively deploy things for the Ruby app that we want to deploy. And uh, let me see if I can pull it up here. While you pull that up, uh,
1: Gabriel, sorry, Kevin, one of the other reasons is if you start trying to meddle with your cap file to make sure your Nginx is configured in a certain way and that socket's up there and this thing's listening there, it's not built for that. There was a a Capistrana plugin, I can't remember the name now, I think it was called Moonshine, which kind of had this idea of you define your whole infrastructure in your cap file. And to me, that's not the responsibility of an application to know mm-hmm. all that stuff about itself. Yeah, I remember,
0: I think it was Rob Connery's, uh, he did a, he had a GitHub repo with a configuration, a Capistrano configuration to deploy an entire server. Uh, I think it was only for a single server that ran your database and web server all together, but regardless. Uh, it was just all running through Capistrano. And while it was very easy to get into and tweak it to do what I wanted it to do, uh, it really wasn't the right fit to have that sitting next to your deploy. But going with Ansible now, is that is that a better fit to have your deployment sitting in the same tool that's doing your um your configuration
3: so for me i mean look they effectively do the same thing right i mean it makes the the release directories where you can roll back and all that stuff they effectively do the same thing but for me it means that me and the team that we work with and our clients when they take these playbooks over if they choose to do that only need to know ansible they don't need to know oh ansible does this thing and then it also kind of does this other little thing called capistrano And then the other thing is, I mean, you can localize your Ansible playbooks with tags. So you can tag all of the things that Capistrano would have done with Rails, for instance. And then you can say, run this playbook, but only run things that are tagged with Rails. And then it will effectively be kind of a Capistrano and it will not do anything else. That's pretty cool if you know that like, nothing else has changed and you just want to get a new version on oh, very, 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 very quickly.
4: I had an opportunity to do something recently with uh, customers who his wildcard SSL cert had expired and we needed to get a new one in. Um, and uh, I think we managed to get about 70 servers done in 10 minutes just by using the correct tags. Um, it, it was flawless <laughs> and so fast. You know, the, the repeatability is it's insane.
2: Yeah, I wanted to say there, Kevin, that uh, over, over time, the Cloud Africa Ansible repo, uh, we've got what, about 30 high level playbooks now, Andre? Yeah,
4: easily.
2: Yeah, and I mean, arbitrary ones, like over time, the servers have gotten, you know, like an old version of some rubbish on them when we tried an experiment. So we've got a playbook that just runs around and cleans up stuff. <laughs> it only gets run on like, you know, every once a month or something. But it's quite nice just having like, one place where we can just add all this automation together. We might never use that playbook again, like that delete one. I don't know, we should probably clean it out, but it was just super easy to write and say, okay, select these servers and run these like 10 commands on all of those servers.
1: I have to echo that I used to add a remove recipe to every chef cookbook. So once whatever experiment failed, you just change the run list to have the remove one and it would do its darnest to undo everything that the other cookbooks, or the other recipes in the same cookbook that works like a charm.
2: Yeah. All right, guys. So, so yeah. before we,
1: I don't know, we're getting long here and we need to like f- chat through some stuff. I just want to propose A a counter argument. So the first time I came from the whole bash, like I want my old stuff, like this is how I've done stuff for a decade, leave me alone, you modern kid. you. But I've settled on quite a different stack lately that I'm really enjoying is the whole CoreOS and Docker stack. So my whole configuration management at the moment is basically uh, a Git repo with systemd units and Docker files to build up the systems to deploy my systems and it is so super minimalist I have one interaction with my server and it's the fleet command that CoreOS gives is there a space in this that I should still consider using ansible because I've ticked the same boxes it's all repeatable it's inversion control it's automatable where does ansible sit on that edge of the cloud cloudy spectrum
4: uh, from from my experience you're you're ticking all the boxes, you know, you're doing the right stuff. The only area you may improve on the primitives that um, Docker give you to build out your, your Docker images is with potency. So if you start doing things that require a little bit of potency, which is a little, I guess, a little strange inside of a Docker world, you know, you 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 don't often update images, you throw them away, right?
2: You always throw yes. them away. Yeah. yeah,
4: so then I think you're, you're in a happy place. You know, there the may be absolutely no reason for you to to look at Ansible in in this case.
1: I'm just thinking for people that are not fortunate enough to be in my current position. I mean, I had the Greensfields project, and and that's kind of the luxury. But I'm thinking where we help other teams, where I have chats around coffee tables with people at meetups and stuff, being able to make an informed decision to just get them to automate in the first place and get this configuration pinned down in version
4: control. Yeah, I think think the adoption cycle for something like Ansible um, doesn't necessarily need some Greenfields project for you to be able to go all out on. Um, Literally have a look at at what you're spending a lot of time doing as a sysadmin, um, uh, even sort of an unwilling sysadmin as a developer, um, and pick the thing that takes the most time away from you off that list and automate it. Uh, you you get to eighty twenty very quickly like that, and you find you you have a bunch of free time on your hands once you you start approaching a problem like that.
3: I was going to say uh, one thing to do is adopt the philosophy that logging into a server should be considered a bug. Mm. Yeah, I compare. So so I mean I, I want to talk about motivation, like from a maybe from like a business perspective, like how do you convince the the people that cut your paychecks that this is something you should do. Um, you guys keen to explore that for a few minutes
1: yes i think it's a great way to maybe close the loop solve
3: right cool um so from my side like i think like don't don't motivate for using ansible i think just do it like rather beg for forgiveness instead of asking for, for permission and the reason i say is like everybody's going to want to have a say in the color of the spike shed so just go ahead and do
4: it a uh, successful automation um, is, is sort of an organizational bottom-up. It's it's developers and sysadmins that drive that. I've I've hardly seen. Uh, I haven't actually seen an organization where it was mandated by management and it was a success.
3: Yeah, and I mean the other thing is, like, once you're done, it, it's very, very easy to justify why you want to, why you would want to do this. I mean, just take, uh, you can use a simple relative revenue calculation. So take the cost of your infrastructure, plus salaries, plus software licenses, if that's applicable, and just calculate that over time to uh, over over the time it takes you to get to market for a historic project, and then normalize that value over some unit of revenue. So say like a million rand. And then you'll get a number. And then do the same for a project that you used Ansible on. And you'll get another number. And if the first number is bigger than the second number, then you know that uh, you are actually saving costs.
0: And to talk about one other thing that I find very useful with, um, just having this checked into version control, having something that's predictable. And to me, this is one of the greatest motivations for it is Handing over to someone who's never worked on a system before. So I know at platform 45, I can get onto pretty much any, um, any of our software that's running where we've got a Chef backend. I can go and make a change to a Chef recipe and just hit the, hit the button. And I know that Chef will just run and that the servers will be updated in the way that I've, well, that I'm expecting it to happen. Um, and if I have to redeploy from, for any purpose, I just know that those uh, chef cookbooks are ready to go.
2: Yeah, that's a huge that's a huge benefit. Yeah, even yeah. if I've
0: never worked on the code base in my life before.
2: Yeah. Yeah, often Andre is like tweaking infrastructure. Then I just – I don't know what he's done. I just run the playbook.
0: Yeah, and it's not a matter of having to find a directory of bash scripts and knowing that you have to run script number 99 three times. Uh, which, which is sitting in a readme in a different directory.
2: I just can't, Ansible update production. Yeah,
0: Thank it, you. <laughs> it normalizes that, which makes it a super great time saver.
2: Exactly. And I don't have to carry all that stuff around in my head. I can just go off and develop new stuff. Ansible deploy production. Yeah, and It, it happens.
0: And isn't one of Rich Hickey's quotes that the prerequisite for reliability is simplicity? Something along
2: those yeah, it's lines. it's actually, yeah, well, that's Jack's
0: track. Actually, Jack's track. Yeah, but yes, oh, okay. yeah. I heard you say it. Um, mm. And this simplifies that whole process of getting your getting your cluster set up in the way that it needs to be set up and removes human error.
1: I think we skipped on something very important. Testing. Um, that's something I never got around to doing in Chef, but I wanted to. They have this test kitchen and a whole harness around being able to very quickly test using other Vagrant machines that get completely torn down and start fresh if you want to do the whole life cycle or just like incremental steps, or apparently they can do it with Docker faster now. How would I go about unit testing my Ansible playbooks so that I'm sure they actually work?
3: So from my side, I have a fairly uh, complex Vagrant file that spins up a number of machines that are networked in a certain way. And that mimics my production environment. Um, as far as you can mimic something like a scale in Vagrant. And then I just run that as a separate inventory that is pretty much identical to production. If it works, there, it's going to work in production.
1: So you manually test it and interrogate it for correctness.
3: Yeah, I mean it's not perfect. I, I don't. I haven't really stumbled upon the holy grail for Ansible testing yet. But I think maybe maybe Andre's got it up there. Ansible's
4: declarative, man. It's going to do step A, B, C, and D. You know, if you if you need to test the environment you're running in, you probably want to audit with something like ServiceSpec to assert that the services are running in the correct manner. They're listening to the correct ports. You know. Um, to be honest, I haven't really seen the use of testing Ansible. Either it's going to work or it isn't. Um, and it's, it it fails pretty quickly. So your your development turnaround on that is fast.
1: Cool. No, that's good to hear. I did a quick Google in the background, and I found a, a presentation. I might just drop it in for the show notes about test-driven infrastructure with Ansible, test kitchen, server spec, and RSpec. So I definitely think uh, people um, will lean towards it. And I, must, I was waiting for the server spec to come out. Just expecting it from Gabriel.
3: Yeah, I'm feeling pretty... Yeah. I'm feeling pretty <laughs> stupid yeah, Gabriel, right didn't now. you give a
0: presentation about this that Kenneth might be citing here? Yeah?
3: feels like it was a lifetime ago,
4: dude. At an Ansible meetup as well.
3: Yeah, I know. That's why I'm <laughs> feeling so dumb right now.
1: No, but, but don't. It's actually a testament to exactly what you said. Like, the repeatability and the ease of building these things up over time means, like, that other tools actually, the importance becomes less. So you kind of validate it in a way that these things don't play such a big role as it would in a dynamic programming language like Ruby or JavaScript.
3: Yeah, I'll take that. (laughs) I'll take that one.
0: So do you find that you don't test any of these things using Service Pack or uh, what was your experience using Service Pack when you did try to test these, if you did?
3: Yeah, well I mean that's exactly the, the point that Kenneth made is like I i needed server spec for a project where I didn't really have a choice with um for for using Ansible. So I needed to verify that things were set up as they said they'd be set up. But I mean when you got Ansible, like it is what it is because it's declarative. That's if it says it's gonna be if it says that's what should be there, it's gonna be there unless it breaks.
0: Okay, cool. So I've heard all of this cool stuff about automation. Um, I want to get rid of this directory of Bash scripts and SSH commands that I keep running. Uh, And I want to use Ansible. Where do I start? Download it. And then?
3: (laughs) So uh, I'll tell you how I got started. Um, I attended a a Ruby workshop. So unless anyone's got a time machine and a plane ticket to Cape Town, uh, that's not going to happen. So another great place to get started is Ansible runs semi-regular webinars. Uh, and they're compatible with the South African time zone, so you can catch it in the early evening, and they will spend about two hours walking you through the basics of getting up and running with, with Ansible, so if you've got the time and your schedule allows it, I would say hook into one of those webinars they're, they run semi-regularly yeah,
4: I think I'm going to muddle in one of my picks here which is, there's a book by a dude called Jeff Geerling um, it's published on leanpub.com so you can, you can- Pretty much pay what you want for it. I think the minimum is is about ten dollars. Uh, the book's name is Ansible for DevOps, and it is a, an incredible source of 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 how to in the space. Um, Jeff has a, a very wide contribution in terms of uh, Ansible roles that he does as well. So uh, if if you're interested, Kenneth, it's a good place for you to see how people could possibly go about solving problems using roles that are generalized.
3: Cool. Thanks. And there's also ansible up and running by O'Reilly
2: cool. well it sounds like we're into our picks um, yeah cool and Andre from your side like any closing remarks on ansible and perhaps you can take us through what other picks you've got
4: um, the puppet ended up becoming a little bit more of a nightmare than than I was expecting and Ansible has been a complete breath of fresh air and it's largely the simplicity that's that's made it that for me i'm I'm thoroughly a fan um, My tip for this week would be having a look uh, for for our sysadmin uh, folk is having a look at sysadmin advent, which is a a sort of a a couple of days in December. I think they run 15 or 16 days. Um, They focus on one area in sysadmin that's kind of pushing the boundaries of of what people are doing. Uh, One blog article per day. Okay, thanks. Good insight from that.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, Gabriel, anything, any closing stuff from your side? Any thoughts and uh, whatever picks you've got, man?
3: So, I mean, for me, Ansible uh, has also, like, it's been such an amazing experience to, to see this thing up and running. I mean, where it takes an application that has maybe around 200, what would have been 200 manual steps to be able to get this thing run in one command, a whole bunch of infrastructure. It's been amazing. Um, I will happily share my playbooks with anyone that wants them. Uh, they're in a bit of a rough state now. And they need a bit of refactoring. But hey, we can even do that together, which would be a learning oh, experience. Oh, that's super
2: cool. Thanks. The
3: other thing I would say is uh, check out Ansible 2. It's coming very, very soon. I think it's already in beta. Yeah. And then in terms of my picks, I would say check out Let's Encrypt. Last uh. week they went in... Uh, sorry. <laughs> so I know that is definitely somewhat thick. Uh, Let's Encrypt went into open beta last week, I think on the 3rd or the 4th of December. And I will actually, in this week or early next week, be turning uh, Ansible Playbooks into Ansible Playbooks that support bootstrapping and automating the Let's Encrypt cert um, request and renewal cycle. So that should be a fun adventure.
2: Oh, that's super cool. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, Ken?
3: Uh, okay.
1: All right. um, <laughs> that's fine. So I started like writing longer form medium style blog posts again that's not sp- that won't be published to medium but I found this great app Ulysses I've been using the Nano Remo version which is a free trial so sorry by the time everybody uses the trials over but it looks well worth buying it's a bit expensive just north of 600 Rand. Uh, but it's a fantastic tool um, I found uh, I was listening to this great se radio uh, episode with Jess Humble this morning. It's an older episode for February. Um, I'll drop a link for the show notes where he talks like introduces continuous delivery um, at a, at a nice high level. Uh, it's a fantastic show if you just like want to refresh on some stuff and and hear like what some bigger companies are doing with it and or maybe pass along to somebody else. Uh, that's yeah, that's kind of another one. And let's encrypt is not wasn't one of my picks, but I'm also stupidly excited to see where that's going now. And then I found this presentation for the show notes on testing. Uh, uh Ansible cookbooks with either one of those three tools, States Kitchen, uh Server Spec or just vanilla R spec, which might be useful for people if they think through that. That's okay, me. Thanks,
2: Kevin. Uh, Kevin?
0: Cool. So I'm going to start off with uh with WeChat. Now I'm not talking about that instant messaging app on phones. W E E chat mm. is a terminal based IRC client. So I've been hanging out on Freenode quite a lot lately. So,
2: so don't you have to say that with a Scottish accent? <laughs> I give up already yeah.
0: uh, and i'm still going to pick let's encrypt uh, even though it's been stolen from my well, it's been clawed out of my dead fingers here um, <laughs> because sorry, in, in, I'm sorry just because in the context of automation the one thing that they really that I really like what they're doing is that their certificates expire every 90 days and they want to get that down to expiring they're talking about bringing it down to once a week and mm, with the, awesome. with the real goal of just of being that you're going to automate your certificate update and constantly be changing out your certificates.
2: Mm, so, that's yeah. super interesting. Yeah, let's encrypt. Hopefully, okay.
0: hopefully at some point we can get to a point where we have no unencrypted traffic going around the world on HTTP.
2: Awesome. So here's to a safer and more automated internet, right? I love <laughs> it. I love it. Then, what are your picks? Well, first of all, I just want to say thanks to everybody for being on the podcast. Super awesome, super cool. interesting. Um, just for any of the listeners who are interested in getting into like server automation, haven't done much of it before, but maybe know a bit of Bash and things, I saw on a pick RunDeck. It was a tool that saved my bacon on a previous project. just allows you to automate the running of like basic commands on a bunch of servers. It's a very, very simple tool. Got a great little web UI. Very low barrier to entry. But it'll give you an idea of how it all works. And once you graduate from that, you can start looking at other things or maybe it's uh, it's enough. But, yeah, thank you so much, guys. Thanks, everyone, for being in the podcast. And look forward to chatting to you guys again sometime soon. Cool. Thanks, guys. Cool,
3: guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks. That, that was, was great. Awesome. Cheers, everyone. Cheers. 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 Bye-bye. Cheers.